It's great to be with you guys again. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, and as we read about these events leading up to the death of your son, God, would you please open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you more clearly. God, we want to see your holiness. We want to see your beauty. We want to see your glory. We want to see your wisdom and your sovereignty. We want to see your kindness. We want to see your grace. God, we want to see you. And so as we see you and as we see your incredible love for us, would you please transform our hearts to be more like the heart of your son? Would you please stir in us a deep affection for you, God? Help us to trust, help us to behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel, and help us to worship you, God. And so we pray all of these things in utter dependence upon your grace and your power, your spirit at work within us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, with this, this Friday being Good Friday, uh, next Sunday being Easter, as I was praying about what passage in Scripture uh, to preach on this afternoon, it seemed beneficial to have us to just kind of slow down and to meditate upon the familiar passage of those events leading up to that destined day that we were singing about, the destined day of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so it's a long text, Matthew 26 and 27, but I think it would do us spiritual good to walk through it again with fresh eyes and recount all that Jesus, Jesus endured in those final days on our behalf so that we might be saved and so that the Father might be glorified. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and just open it to Matthew 26. We're going to work our way through all of 26, all of 27. And, uh, and I've broken up these two chapters into four parts. And so here's the four parts. And so part one is the plot to kill Jesus. Part two is the preparation of Jesus for his own death. Part three is the punishment that was handed down to Jesus. And then finally, part four is the passing of Jesus on that cross. And so four parts, the plot to kill Jesus, the punish or the preparation of Jesus for his own death, the punishment that was handed down to Jesus, and then finally the passing of Jesus on that cross. And we're going to work our way through and meditate on the grace and the wisdom of our God within each of these parts, and we'll try and draw some applications along the way. And so that's the plan. Let's start with part one. The Plot to Kill Jesus, chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, let's just pause right there. What are all these things? Well, for, for the past three chapters leading up to chapter 26, Jesus had been teaching on the coming judgment of God. Not the most popular topic of our day, right? Not the most popular topic of Jesus' day either. In fact, verses 3 and 4 tell us that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were so opposed to Jesus' teaching that they, verse 4, that they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. The ESV translation says that they sought to do this by stealth. They wanted to do it secretly. Not during the festival, verse 5, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. You see, the people... They liked Jesus. 
But the priests and the elders, they hated him. They sought to kill him. But back in verse 2, we see Jesus talking with his disciples, and he says, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. You see, the religious leaders, they sought to kill Jesus secretly. Sorry, leaders, Jesus already knows. He just called it. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus had given his disciples a heads up, right? This was actually the fourth time recorded within Matthew's account that Jesus foretells his impending arrest and execution. And then the disciples, they just never seem to get it. Every time he tells them, they never seem to understand. One time Peter even tries to rebuke Jesus, remember? And he just thought, Jesus, that is so incredulous. Why would you say something like that? But why is Jesus reminding them over and over and over again? It's to have them and us recall that everything that's about to happen is according to plan. Nothing is a surprise. Jesus is in absolute control. And so if we slide down to verse 14, we see that it wasn't just the religious leaders that wanted to get rid of Jesus, right? Judas, one of the 12 within the inner circle of Jesus, he was tired of Jesus too. And so in verse 15, Judas finds those leaders and he says, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And so they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. That's about a third of year's wages. And from that time, the text says, Judas started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And so you have the leaders trying to kill Jesus, and you have a close friend trying to betray Jesus. And yet right in the middle, in verse 7, the author, Matthew, he's very strategic in inserting this story about this woman who approaches Jesus with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume about an entire year's worth of wages, and she pours it on Jesus' head, and she anoints him. And the disciples, they don't get it. They're thinking, what a waste of money. But then Jesus responds in verse 10, right? Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By, perf- by pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me, don't miss this, for burial. There Jesus goes again, foretelling his death. And he continues, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What an incredible woman of God. When everyone else around her wanted to get rid of Jesus, leaders trying to kill, Judas trying to betray, this woman, she takes courage. She worships, right? In the midst of a hostile environment, this woman celebrates Jesus for the treasure that he is, more to be treasured than all of her possessions. And so the question for us, even right in the get-go, is are we like this too? In other words, what is our response to Jesus? Is it get rid of him I could do without him? Or is it he is everything to me? Nothing can compare to intimacy with Jesus. You can have all the world. You can have all it has to offer. Please just give me Jesus. What's our response? We can learn a lot from this honored woman. 
May we be people who, who respond rightly to Jesus, just like this woman did, right? Let's move on to part two, the preparation of Jesus for his own death. Because it's the time of the year for Passover to be observed. And so in verses 17 through 19, Jesus gives his disciples instructions for making preparations for Passover. And you might remember that Passover was the most important time of the year for Jewish people. This was the time that Israel would remember how God had saved them from slavery in Egypt. You guys remember this? And so the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, he kept the Israelites as his slaves. They had no way out until Moses finally shows up and he tells Pharaoh to let the Israelites free so that they can go and worship God. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God sends plagues, right, to loosen Pharaoh's grip on Israel. One plague after another, after another, after another. Egypt is devastated, but Pharaoh is still stubborn. He still refuses to let Israelites go. And so finally, in judgment, God, in effect, says, I'm going to place my divine wrath and justice on the entire land of Egypt. Everybody living in Egypt, both Egyptians and Israelites, must be subject to this judgment. You see, God's judgment couldn't just skip over or pass over the Israelites just because they're Israel. And the reason why is because everyone had sinned, Egyptian and Israel alike. And therefore, everyone is liable to judgment. The only way to escape God's judgment would be to trust in God's provision of salvation. And so they were to take a lamb and they were to slaughter it, take its blood and place the blood on the doorposts and above the doors and the families whose homes were covered by the blood of a substitutionary lamb. They were not punished as the judgment of God blew over all of Egypt. Those who did not submit to this covering those who chose not to trust in God's provision of salvation, their firstborn was dead by the end of the night. When God's judgment came, within every single home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. And where there was a dead lamb, the judgment of God would pass over that family and that home, and they would be spared. So Passover was the celebration of the day that the slaughter of a lamb spared God's people from the impending judgment of God. And not only was their family spared that evening, Pharaoh also finally let the Israelites go. They were redeemed. They were renewed into a relationship with God. They were freed. This is what Passover commemorated. And it was celebrated every single year for 1,000 years leading up to this moment right here that we're reading about. So in verse 26, Jesus is leading his disciples through the Passover feast. And the text says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And then he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
You see, during the Passover feast, there was a particular and specific script and form that the head of the Passover feast was meant to follow. But Jesus, this time, being the head of this feast, he took that script that had been in place, remember, for over a thousand years, and he just changed it right then and there. He took the bread, and what the leader was supposed to say was, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. He was supposed to take that bread and say, this bread is symbolic of our forefathers' affliction. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't point backwards to the Israelites' history. Instead, he points to himself. And he says, this is my affliction. This is my suffering. This is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. And then he takes that cup. And what the leader of the feast was supposed to say and had been saying was, may the all-merciful one make us worthy for the days of the Messiah. It was meant to call Israel to get ready for the coming of the Christ. And again, Jesus, he flips the script. He takes the cup, and in effect, he says, this cup, it's about me. I'm here. My blood will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And once again, we're reminded, we're meant to be reminded, Jesus knows what's coming. He says, my blood will be poured out, and everything is going according to plan. And Jesus goes on to say, this is my blood of the what? of the covenant. You see, in Old Testament times, a covenant was a binding relationship, right? Like an oath, almost like signing a contract. But the way that this covenant was ratified was extremely serious. What you would do is you would kill an animal and you would cut it in half and then you would walk between the pieces as you stated your oath. Or sometimes you would take the blood of a slaughtered animal and you would sprinkle that blood on yourself as you made your promise. And it's kind of gory, it's kind of gross, but the message was this. If I do not fulfill my covenant, my promise, may I become like one of these animals. That's how serious a covenant was. And so when Jesus says here in verse 28, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In effect, what Jesus is saying is this. I am inaugurating a new covenant, just like Jeremiah prophesied. Just like he said in Jeremiah 31, I will be your God and you will be my people, for I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. Jesus says, I'm making an oath with you, a new covenant. It is a binding relationship between you and me. And if I break my side of this oath, may my blood be spilt. And if you break your side of this oath, if you sin, may my blood be spilt. So that yours wouldn't have to. So that you would be forgiven. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see why we call Jesus the Lamb of God? Just as in the Passover in Egypt, an innocent lamb was slaughtered and anyone who took refuge under the blood of the lamb, the judgment of God would pass over them. Well, likewise, 
Jesus was slaughtered and his blood was poured out. And all of us who take refuge under Jesus, the Lamb of God, the judgment of God against sin passes over us too. Do you all see that? And so as we move on through the night, Jesus, he tells his disciples that he knows they're all going to abandon him. They're all going to forsake him. They're all going to run away. And you, you remember this, Peter, he, he puffs up and he says, no, I won't. The disciples, they all say the same thing. And Jesus basically tells them they're wrong, but he kind of just drops it. He, he really just moves on. Because in verse 36, we see that Jesus, he goes into the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And remember, he's preparing for his own death. And yet he's in agony as he falls down on his face and he prays in verse 39. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Literally, he says, Abba, calling on God, calling on God like he's daddy. He says, is there any other way to save sinners from judgment? And there isn't. And so Jesus perfectly submits, yet not as I will, but as you will, God. This cup that Jesus was referring to that he wanted to pass from him all throughout the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for the wrath of God against sin. So as Jesus is, in verse 38, deeply grieved to the point of death, as verse 38 describes, Luke 22 and Hebrews 12 will describe that Jesus was in such agony that he, he literally shed drops of blood. What was he so grieved about? Some say it was him knowing the physical, torturous death that he was about to enter into. And sure, that's, that's true, but that wasn't all. What grieved Jesus most was he knew that he was about to be pierced for our transgressions. He was about to be crushed for our iniquities. We would receive peace, but upon him would be the punishment of God. And what's more, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, right? It pleased the Lord to crush him even. You see, all Jesus had ever known before this was perfect union, perfect intimacy with God the Father. And so Jesus was in agony because he knew that by going upon that cross, in so doing, he would be taking on our sin. And that perfect union that he had enjoyed with his Father, it would be broken just like that. And it terrified him. And so as he's praying, he's asking Peter, James, John to pray with him. And they can't seem to stay awake. He calls them out three times. They still can't stay awake. Finally, in verse 45, Jesus says, See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. And in walks Judas, along with all the religious leaders, along with a large mob, swords, clubs in their hands. They're here to arrest Jesus. And Peter pulls out his sword and he's trying to defend Jesus and Jesus pulls Peter back and he says in verse 53, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of, angel, legions of angels? He says, don't you realize I could get out of all of this right now and save myself if I wanted to. 
But then in verse 44, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And once again, Jesus reminds us everything is going according to plan. The scriptures talked about a Passover lamb and Jesus says, I'm here. I came for this very purpose. I am in control. I am the fulfillment of all of those scriptures. All those Passover feasts, all those sacrifices, all those prophecies, they all pointed to me, Jesus says. It's always been about me. And so church, here's, here's kind of another point of application for us. It's, it's that we're just, we ought to behold the faithfulness and the love and the resolve of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He could have called down 12 legions of angels if he wanted to. He could have saved himself. But for the joy that was set before him, right, he marched towards that cross. He endured that cross. He scorned its shame like Hebrews 12.2 says. He gave his life for us, for that's why he came in the first place. This was always the plan. Everything is going according to plan. We ought to marvel at the grace of Jesus. And yet from this point forward, what we're going to come and see is Jesus, he's done talking. Which leads us to part three, the punishment that's handed down to Jesus. Because from here on out, we're going to see Jesus enter into two trials. The first is, is a religious trial in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. And the second is a civil trial in front of Pilate, the governor in Rome. And what we're going to see from this point forward is Jesus, before he is finally led off to be crucified, he will only say two more things. The time for teaching is over. No more parables, no more sermons. He's been betrayed. He's been delivered over to his accusers. No more defense. Just like we read in Isaiah, like an, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In verse 59, we read that the chief priests and the entire Sanhedrin, a.k.a. all of the religious leaders, were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But do you see the sad irony here? Jesus is on trial here, but they already have a verdict, and they even already have a sentence. He's guilty. He deserves death. What's he guilty of? Well, they're looking for any false testimony that they can nail Jesus with. And verse 60 says, but they could not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they couldn't even find two people to say the same thing. Because you see, in Jewish law, two people had to agree, right, on a single testimony for it to be tried in court. And the Jewish leaders, they couldn't even get two people to say the, say the same thing. They want to get rid of Jesus that badly. They lose all sense. They lose all rationality. The lengths that they are capable of going in order to just not make Jesus their Lord is absolutely staggering. But it should also sober us because the truth is the lengths that we are capable of going in order to sidestep making Jesus as Lord, it should humble us 
the religious leaders, don't get me wrong, they're being absolutely ridiculous here, no doubt. But lest we be too quick to point the finger and condemn, we really ought to examine our own hearts carefully. Because in some ways, we are not far from them. We too can abandon rationality sometimes. We too can justify certain little sins in our heart. We too can go against our common consciences committing quote-unquote little sins because we don't think they're that big of a deal. But the reality is these little sins, in doing so, we're convincing ourselves that it's okay to place ourselves on the throne of our own hearts and lives. And thus, we sidestep making Jesus our Lord. Just like the religious leaders, there is an irrational desire to dethrone Jesus inside all of us. And so therefore, you and I, we would do well to humbly examine our own hearts and just simply ask, in what ways have I indulged an irrational desire to dethrone Jesus in my own life, in my own heart? In what ways have I been just like these religious leaders? And may God give us grace to see these things and to repent, right, for our joy and for his glory. Well, finally, in verse 61, two people do come forward with a testimony, and they say, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God, and I can rebuild it in three days. Which, by the way, is false, right? Jesus didn't say that. Jesus did refer to his own body being the temple or the dwelling place of God and saying that even if and when they kill him in three days, he will rise. He did say that. But either way, in verse 62, we see the high priest he stands up from his judgment seat and he joins in with the prosecutors. He says, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus responds in verse 64, you have said it, but I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Literally what Jesus says is, I am. And then he pulls together two prophecies, one from Psalm 110, the other from Daniel 7, and he uses these two prophecies to describe himself. The prophet Daniel talked about a Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven. And this son of man is given an everlasting dominion, everlasting glory, and an everlasting kingdom so that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him for the remainder of all time. That's what Daniel prophesied. And David, he talked about how this son of man would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty, the place of highest honor, and he would execute judgment among all the nations. That's what David prophesied. So when the high priest tells Jesus, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus effectively says, I am. In fact, all of the authority and all of the fullness of God dwells in me bodily. 
and you may have me bound up on trial before you, but the reality is I am the judge of all, Jesus says, and you stand on trial before me. And that's what Jesus is saying here in his comment. And he says all that the religious leaders needed to hear. Because in verse 65, the high priest, he tore his robes and he said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who is it that hit you? And the sad irony is Jesus told them the truth. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God, and they don't even stop to contemplate whether or not he's telling them the truth. They dismiss him so quickly. And so if you're in here and Jesus isn't your Lord, Jesus isn't your Savior, if you would allow me, can I talk with you for a minute? And first of all, I'm so glad that you are here. You are welcome. You are welcome here anytime. But secondly, Jesus He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the only means of salvation from sin and judgment. Will you please take the time and examine whether or not he was telling the truth? Please don't be like these religious leaders we're reading about, deciding on a verdict so quickly before they'd even decided to investigate Well, so as we move on, we see that Peter, he denies even knowing Jesus. He does so three times before the night even ends, before the rooster crows, just like Jesus called it. And then in the beginning of chapter 27, it says, when daybreak came, Jesus enters into his second trial. So they arrested him at the Garden of Gethsemane at night. They rushed him through a religious trial in the middle of the night, leading up to the time that the sun rises, and now they're rushing him into the second trial in front of Pilate, the governor, and Rome so that they can have him execute Jesus ASAP. You see, they didn't want to be the ones to actually execute Jesus. Because as we read back in chapter 26, verse 5, the people liked him. They didn't want to start a riot. But they also didn't have the authority to execute capital punishment. That was Rome's job. So they bring him to Pilate, and they're trying to convince Pilate to execute Jesus. And Matthew doesn't go into the detail here, but Luke does. They can't just bring Jesus before Pilate and simply say, this man claims to be Messiah, you need to execute him. Pilate would just respond, great, I don't care, that's a religious statement. That's a religious matter. You deal with it on your own. That's your problem. Let me know if he's broken one of Rome's laws, right? So the religious leaders, they're smart. They bring Jesus before Pilate, and the way that Luke tells us in Luke 22 is what they say is, this man claims to be a king. Now that's a political statement. To be a king means you're a rival of Caesar. To be a rival of Caesar means to commit sedition against Rome. To commit sedition, well, that's a civil matter. Deserving of capital punishment. Well, now Pilate needs to get involved. And so that's why we see in verse 11, chapter 27, verse 11, Jesus is standing before the governor and Pilate asks him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you say so. Which is a very interesting response by Jesus. It's very strategic too. Because if Jesus had simply say to that question, if he had answered, are you the king of Jews? And he says, no, I'm not a king. Well, then that's the end of the trial, right? Pilate would have been done. You don't claim to be a king. You're no threat to Rome. You can go now, right? That would be the end of that. He wouldn't have been killed. But if Jesus answered straight up with that question with a, yes, I am a king. Well, that's the end of that trial too. Oh, okay. You're an enemy of Rome. Pilate would have had him killed. But in saying, you say so, Jesus is basically saying, kind of. But I'm not the kind of king in a way that you're thinking about it. Which is actually the perfect response on Jesus' behalf. Because what it did is it allowed for the trial to keep moving forward. And so in verse 12, it says this. While he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they're testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. But Pilate is smart too. He's intuitive. Verse 18 says that Pilate knew it was because of envy that the religious leaders handed him over. Pilate knew that Jews weren't actually concerned about sedition against Rome, so he tries to call them out on it. That's why we read in verse 15, or read in verse 15, it says this, that at the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. And at that time, they had a, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, who is Barabbas? Again, Matthew doesn't go into detail, but Mark and Luke tell us. Barabbas was a seditionist. Barabbas was an insurrectionist who murdered, trying to do what? Overthrow Caesar and overthrow Rome. And Pilate basically says, you want Jesus executed because he's committing sedition? Let me show you a real seditionist. And in verse 17, he says, who is it that you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? And they answer in verse 21. They say, Barabbas. And their motives are completely exposed. They don't want Jesus executed because he's trying to lead a revolt against Rome. They want Jesus executed because they simply don't want Jesus to be their Lord. And the sad irony is this. Before Jesus was even born, Israel was waiting for the promised Messiah to show up. And do you know what kind of Messiah these people wanted? They wanted a military Messiah who would save them from Roman rule and oppression. They wanted someone to lead them in a revolt. But Jesus comes, and he's not the Messiah that they wanted. And the religious leaders hated him for it. So they call for Pilate to kill him. When asked why, they say, because he's trying to lead a revolt against Rome. And here they are with a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, the actual Messiah that they've been waiting for. And they choose Barabbas. Pilate asks them in verse 22, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all answered, crucify him. 
Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. And Jesus says nothing, no defense. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And Pilate, who's not really actually interested in truth or justice, but just trying to conduct crowd control, verse 24 says that when he saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he gives the crowd what they want. He hands down to Jesus the punishment of crucifixion. And before we actually move on to those, those actual events surrounding the crucifixion, let's pause for a moment. I took the time to point out the sad irony of Israel getting Jesus killed as a man leading some sort of political revolt, even though a political revolt is exactly what they actually wanted. I pointed out the sad irony that back in chapter 26, when the religious leaders mocked Jesus as Messiah as they beat him, when in fact the reality is he is Messiah. I point out these sad ironies because there's an application for us here. You see, sad irony, it's not just taking place within this story. Sad irony takes place within our own lives as well. How often do we say things that are true, but our lives reflect something false? That's sad irony. So we'll say things like, God is sovereign. He is in control. He is good. He is loving. All true. But the sad irony is, how often do I find myself overcome with anxious thoughts when I know he's in control? God is the ultimate provider. That's true. He even takes care of the birds in the air, the lilies in the field. Yet how often do I find myself fretting and worrying about money? God is my father in heaven and he loves me and accepts me in Jesus. But the sad irony is how often do we find ourselves fearful of men and what they might think of us? God is just, but how often do we try and take justice into our own hands? Commit revenge, maybe physically, maybe not necessarily physically. Maybe we do so by gossiping behind someone's back or by harboring bitterness against someone who's wronged us or holding on to unforgiveness towards someone even though we know God is the just one and the avenger. God is all satisfying. Yet how often do we run to the lusts of our own flesh and the pleasures of this world? How often do we say things that are 100% true, but yet our lives reflect something that's false? The Jewish leaders, they would rather kill Jesus than crown him. But how often do we call Jesus Lord but in reality, we've sidestepped him, making ourselves Lord. This is a sad irony. And so we ought to carefully examine our own hearts. And may God help us as we do, again, for our joy and for his glory. Let's move on to that last part, part four, the passing of Jesus on the cross. So in verse 25, Pilate has Jesus flogged. And I don't need to go into the gore of it all, but the Romans, what they would do is they would make a whip, and at the end of the whip were fragments of bone and metal. And so a flogging would involve this kind of a whip. And it was a form of torture for maximum pain before death. But in verse 28, the text says this. They stripped Jesus and dressed him in a scarlet robe. 
They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. They put him on a cross, and they drive nails through his hands and through his feet, and they just let him hang there alongside two other criminals. And everyone is still mocking him. They say in verse 42, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe in him. But thank God that Jesus did not listen to their taunts. Praise Jesus for his faithfulness to the very, very end. He could have come down from that cross, but he wouldn't. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6. And if God is just, someone must pay for the wages of our sin. Someone must die. And the Son of God, Jesus, he came down from heaven, lived the perfect life, sinless life that we were supposed to live, but we just couldn't, could we? And he died on that cross paying the penalty that we were supposed to pay because it was our sin, but he did it on our behalf. If Jesus had listened to their taunts and come down from that cross, our sin would still be upon us. Praise Jesus for his faithfulness. And so right at about noon, for three hours in the middle of the day, verse 45 says, darkness came over the whole land. Darkness in the Old Testament symbolized the judgment of God over sin. And who was that judgment placed upon? It was Jesus. Verse 46 finally says, uh, verse 46, Jesus says, or Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And this right here is what deeply grieved Jesus back in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus hung there on the cross, he was bearing the sin of all who would trust in him as the sacrificial lamb. And God, being holy, who cannot be in the presence of sin, God turns his back on his own son. And finally in verse 50, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice, breathes his last breath, gives up his spirit, and immediately in verse 51, the text says, the curtain of the century was torn from top to bottom. Normally, in the sanctuary or in the temple, there was a large curtain, right? 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and it separated people from the most holy place where the glory of God dwelt. Nobody could enter into this space and live. Only the holiest man, the high priest, could enter, and only once a year. And even then, the priest would have to bring a blood sacrifice of a slaughtered lamb to make atonement for sins. This curtain said loud and clear that it was impossible for sinful people to enter into God's presence and still live. But the moment Jesus died, 
the curtain was torn completely from top to bottom, signifying this was God's work, but also signifying that Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, was slaughtered. And similar to that fateful Passover night back in Egypt, anyone who trusts in God's one and only provision of salvation and takes refuge under the blood of the Lamb of God, under Jesus, that person, even if they sin, can be forgiven, can have access into the very presence of God. The curtain being torn in two meant that anyone No matter your past, no matter your skills, no matter your family, no matter your background, no matter your race, no matter who you were, anyone can have access into a relationship with God. So long as you turn your back on sin and trust in Jesus' perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sin. And so even the Roman soldier who oversaw Jesus' death, even he could be forgiven. So could the women who followed Jesus, they could be forgiven. Even Joseph, who was a very member of the same Jewish council that hated Jesus, even he could be forgiven. So back when Jesus, in a sense, he kind of rewrote the script during that Passover feast. In doing so, he instituted what we call as the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Right? My body broken for you, take and eat it. My blood shed for you. But if you'll notice, back in chapter 26, when he's doing this, in verse 29, he also says this. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He takes that cup of wine and Jesus says, one day, not now, but one day, for all who place their trust in me, I'll see you again. We're going to feast together again in the Father's kingdom in heaven. And we know that what he said is true. How? Because three days later, after his crucifixion, he beats death. He rises again. He's alive. That's how we know that his promise will hold. And we will drink with him from the fruit of the vine in our Father's kingdom alongside one another and alongside all who have ever placed their trust in him, from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every language, all of God's saints, we would drink along with him in the kingdom of heaven. We long for that day. Let's pray. Well, God, we just praise you. We just praise you that in your divine wisdom, but also in your divine grace, in your divine justice, that you sent your son down to be a sacrifice for our sins so that we, couldn't, we wouldn't pay for our sins ourselves. Help us to marvel at your grace, God. Don't let this gospel be just old news or news that we've known for a long time. Let it just completely let us stand in all of you. How could a holy God give grace to sinners like us? How could a holy God give us access to himself through his own son? So God, help us to praise you, help us to trust you, help us to behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel of Jesus and worship you. We pray this in your name, amen.